we have some usual faces and another special guest. Uh, first up, we have Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. Uh, we have Mark Canty. Mark? Mark? <laughs> yeah, it, it was just going too well, starting to turn too early. <laughs> Mark! Mark! <laughs> he's not, he's not, yeah, uh, something's happening with Mark. Uh, I will, <laughs> uh, it was, it was going too well and too, yeah, well, there we go. Will, uh, he, he's doing the whole, uh, <laughs> I can't hear you thing. Anyway, we'll move on to our guest until Mark sort of figures out his audio. Um, and with us, special guest is Adrian, and I hopefully I get this right, Tchaikovsky? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Okay. Adrian, uh, for everybody who has not heard of you and your prolific writing, uh, can you explain... Have I, just, have I lost my audio again? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, you have. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We, we were all going on at the start about how, uh, how pro this was and how we were starting early <laughs> and everything was great. And then... <laughs> Anyway, Adrian, um, tell us a bit about yourself. So who is who are you? What do you do? Okay, well, I'm I'm a science fiction fancy writer. I've been going for about 13, 14 years now. Um, I am almost certainly best known for my novel of a few years back called Children of Time, which is basically about enormous hairy spiders in outer space. Uh, I have written other things, many of which also contain spiders in various proportions. Uh, my most recent um, book out is Doors of Eden, which came out in the middle of this year, which is um, to do with cryptid hunting, parallel universes, speculative evolution, and the end of the universe. Wow, jump, jump, jump! Pack them. Uh, and we've got a, a message from Mark saying, "I can hear you through Facebook and not things." Well, that's 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 useful, Mark. <laughs> anyway, um, okay. So, um, where to start? Um, why, why, why the big, why the hairy spiders? Why, why the big spider obsession? Then. Oh Lord! I mean, I. I, I used to have this very, very clever sounding answer about uh, the long tradition in literature of using insects as a mirror for human nature and sort of Pelevin's life of insects and metamorphosis and all that sort of thing. But basically, it's because I really like spiders and insects and basically animals that most people don't like. <laughs> I think that it was, I mean, I, I was, as, as, as a lot of us were, a fairly disaffected um, child. And honestly, I think I came to that as, as sort of, well, the, these, these things are also similarly sort of on the fringes. Therefore, I will take them on and adopt them as my sort of totem and my tribe and sort of identify with them. And I, even when I was a kid, you know, when, when, I, when I, I watched Star Wars, I watched Star Wars for the aliens and the more kind of reptilian or bug-like or weird the aliens were, the better and you know i loved oh god there's a film a roger corman film battle beyond the stars oh uh, yes which is basically magnificent seven in space except one of the magnificent seven is a great big lizard man <laughs> and although it sounds trivial that was a huge education for me and an enormous influence on my storytelling because it basically yes here is a monstrous creature which is also a hero in the story and that the, the the basically the idea that yes you are allowed to do this was a huge um you know it had a huge impact on me and has very much kind of guided me where I, you know my writing 
you talked about Star Wars, obviously. Um, David Prowse uh, died yes. today, which was very sad. Um, did you, have you ever met him? I I don't think so. You know, it's entirely possible we have been at the same convention, maybe one of the SFX weekenders or something like that. But I don't. You know, the, the the gap between kind of film film celebrity and book writing is enormous in that kind of thing. So you don't generally get to uh to kind of cross the borders unless you've got some sort of pre existing contact. Yeah. I've like, I've met him a couple of times and uh, I, I was lucky to interview him once. Um and what what an amazing guy. It's absolutely um I'm absolutely gutted. It actually it actually affected me quite a lot because um he I th- what what makes me sad, have you ever seen have you ever seen a documentary called um I think it's on Netflix called I Am Your Father. And it's basically, it's a documentary about um, David Prowse and how he was shafted um, mm-hmm. uh, about um, being, you know, he was basically replaced as Darth Vader and he was banned from conventions and things like that um, because of alleged um, dropping of the look, I am your father storyline from um, from Empire. Oh no! Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I was vaguely aware that he there was a, there had been a falling out. I wasn't aware that that was what the um, that well, was yeah. what was claimed. That that's it. So basically, they say he gave it away, um, and he has he denied it until his well until his death. Now, um, and um, there was even people who came out in his defense and said, you know, he didn't. Um, he was meant to have leaked it to. Um, leaked it to the press and stuff, and there's you know, even the press basically said mm. no, he didn't, but. He got he, he got barred from all the main sort of Star Wars conventions and stuff, and um, uh, he didn't even get his last. Um, he didn't even get to do the last sort of scene in Jedi, where obviously Luke uh, takes off the helmet, mm. um, and they reshot it for him so he could he could do that, and it never saw the light of day because it, it's it got oh. shown it got shown once at a convention. And then uh, Lucasfilm at the time, now they basically put a kibosh on and went. Oh, I had no idea. That's I, I, never I just assumed that had always been uh, what is it, Sebastian Shaw for them. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's, it, it was Sebastian Shaw, but they, they filmed uh, the the crew who did the the Netflix um, documentary. They shot it for him basically saying that he deserved to have some effectively FaceTime because oh, he'd, see, he'd always see, been sort of, you know, this. You know, uh, towering figure with no la- with no sort of voice because mm. you know, James Earl Jones obviously did his voice, but um, they they did um, the scene for him and they got uh, stand-ins and uh, yeah, they they showed it at a co- at a con- convention and that was it. Uh, they it got sort of shut down after that, so he never mm. got he never got his sort of his moment with with his helmet off, which was you know slightly sad. Anyway, sorry, it was a bit of a segue because you mentioned Star Wars and stuff. So, um, the the sci-fi thing uh, in the writing, now, Pete told me that you used to work in law. So, did that sort of kind of, was it it writer first, then law, or was it the sort of, you know, while you were doing law? I mean, I got published a long time after I, I got into law. But I got into law through very through a very weird channel, specifically because of the writing. Because I've been I was trying to get published for a long, old time before I actually made it. Um, specifically, um, I ended up at uh, when I came out of university. Uh, after a while on the dole, I had a succession of terrible jobs, um, ending up at the legal aid board, 
Right, okay. Uh, which was not a terrible, which was a perfectly fine job. It was the first decent job I had after a number of real stinkers. Um, and that kind of woke me up to the idea that actually hey, there, there is a whole legal thing here. And, you know, because the legal aid board basically didn't have any kind of structure for advancement it was basically everyone was down at the bottom and then there were some managers at the top but there was no there was nothing you could really do to go anywhere um and and also it was being catastrophically shrunk as the government dialed back on the whole idea of giving things to people who needed it um and so i basically well, what can i do um i don't know anything about law particularly but legal secretary because what i can do is type so i got a job as a legal secretary uh, on the basis i could do 70 words a minute and trained on the job as a legal executive and then i was a legal executive for more than a decade before wow. the fight the writing finally got enough momentum that i could afford to go full-time and that was that was only what a couple of years ago two or three years ago oh wow okay because i i work in law i work for a, a solicitors in manchester so though mm. <laughs> so i've been well actually no i've only i've been in it for like for three years three years now i worked in insurance and then Went into the legal sector. Finally, got myself out of uh, working on chargeable hours. I don't have to do chargeable hours anymore, which is awesome. Ooh. I hate chargeable hours, uh, but yeah. <laughs> so who knows? And I don't know. In another seven years. <laughs> you mentioned that it took you quite a while to get into publishing. Is that yeah. publishing? How long did it take? And how? What was it? Just basically kind of hammering on the door and waiting to yeah, get Yeah, I mean. Let in? Um... 15 years of submitting manuscripts and getting nowhere um and you know every time you know and each as and firmly believing that each manuscript was basically gold dust when i sent it off um <laughs> and i have gone back through the stacks to see what could be saved and i have actually saved those things that could be saved which was really only the like the last couple of books yeah. before empire mm. in black and gold which was the first one that got got in and beyond that, the although I have kind of pirated for ideas, the style is is simply not good enough to be worth rewriting. I might as well just start a new book at that point because it would be an entire book's worth of writing to bring it up to to speed. So it's interesting that I'm look. I, I look back and I think, well, actually, most of the time I wasn't getting anywhere was because I was literally not sending stuff in that was good enough, uh, which is certainly not my fir- wasn't my firmly held belief at the time. But there you go. Well, there's that. If you don't believe that, you wouldn't keep going. If you didn't keep going, you don't get good enough. It's true. It's true. I mean, I the thi- I it took me a long time. I mean, God, the 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 idea of actually you know working with an editor and getting in ed- edits and so forth was a shock to the system because I was very very convinced and uh, about that that it was good enough to start with, and I was also very very loath to basically do more work work on a manuscript once I sent it in. Both of which are things I've had to unlearn. Um, you know, and as far as writing advice for writers goes, that is probably that's probably lesson one is you need to let go of your creations so that other people can make them better. So how does how does that work? Do they do you send it in and they you know like when we edit stuff for the website, it's this like you need to change this this isn't good enough is it like that is it literally them it's there's a whole there, there are basically there are several layers of it um the first one that gets hold of it is my agent because i mean my the 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 first actual break i got was getting an agent and then it was quite a while before he was able to place the book um because publishing was basically very busy at the moment at that point and there wasn't really a space for a new fantasy trilogy um particularly in the market um but so 
and the way it normally goes with me and this is not in any way universal across the board um, my agent will generally deal with large-scale structural stuff and I will I will you know I will generally I, I certainly tr trust his judgment quite happily that I'll make that kind of big change and go back and shuttle things around and cut out large chunks of stuff where he thinks it's being slow and then the publishers tend to do a series of edits um, there'll be a full-on edit which has some larger changes and a lot of smaller changes and then there'll be a copy edit with smaller changes again then there'll be a final proofread through which is hopefully just dotting i's and crossing t's although i do have a very bad habit of suddenly deciding things will be better at the very 11th hour <laughs> that must make you um well thought of at the at the publishers well the thing you actually one of the things you get is you get this warning saying if you make too many changes at this final stage we reserve reserve the right to take money out of your advance and that which is the standard thing it's never happened and i think it's a holdover from when these things actually had a physical setting yeah because yeah. now everything's on um digital obviously the amount of work involved in making these changes is is far far smaller which i mean, I mean it's 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 still there but it's not the same kind of you have to go out and move all the little lead lead letters around the page and whatever the hell however the hell it was originally done <laughs> um but yes i mean i i i, I, I was kind of aware you you have this question, you know, I want to make this change, it'll make the book a lot better, but at the same time I am going to be really getting it from people's noses and you you make the judgment call at that point. And the book always won out for me. But yeah, I am I'm, I'm sure I got sort of cursed at the for these sort of last minute sweeping changes. Was that was there anything have you have you ever fought, fought tooth and nail for a change that you just didn't want to happen? Um, I I mean, possibly again. I've been fortunate. I've never had to fight tooth and nail. I've fought, but generally, I don't think I've ever had something where I'm absolutely adamant that it is or isn't in, and someone else is adamant. And someone else is adamant. Otherwise, I think if I'm if I feel strongly enough about it, that so thus far has carried the day. Right. But at the same time, I really, really don't want to become that guy who feels he doesn't need an editor. So I always, <laughs> even even if I do feel that instinctive kickback against something, I always just sit down, maybe give it a bit of time and come back to it and say, well, look, let's look at, try and look at it as objectively as possible. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I think it's kind of hard. Like Mark's my, Mark's my um, unofficial, <laughs> my unofficial editor. So I'll write something and I'll be super proud of it for the website. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll get a message that, shouldn't have an apostrophe or that doesn't make or this shouldn't do this like ah part of you kind of wants to go no it's right and then you kind of go okay maybe at, at that kind of level what i i'm from i was at school at a period of time where they did not teach you grammar you learned a certain amount of it when you were learning yeah. uh, foreign languages but in english there was apparently sort of educational policy at the time was that well people don't need to learn grammar this sort of thing is getting less and less important <laughs> who's going to be writing anything in the future anyway and then the of course the internet turns up and everyone is reading and writing um vastly more than they were before um and i mean the internet i suspect there have been studies on, on the internet as a promoter of literacy and it, i suspect it's done a colossal amount in that degree of direction but it did mean i was coming to the career of a professional writer not knowing a damn thing about how the language works and i was very <laughs> lucky to have as my first editor a chap who might have been the last of the old school, honestly. Peter Lavery, he, he was my editor for, for the first few Chandler's of the Amped books. Um, and he I would literally get physical manuscripts marked up in pencil from him in immaculate detail, wow. just uh, which took forever to go through. But I it taught me all this stuff I really should have known 
had I had a, a sort of responsible educational policy when I was growing up. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that helped me polish my style no end. I yeah. did find, I do find that actually having a physical copy to read and review and learn from is much more effective than just looking at something on screen. I don't know why that is. I just find it very different. Yeah, I mean, nowadays I'm kind of happy to have the electronic copy because it's quicker. Yeah. To work through. And you're not, you're not kind of, because I used to have a whole, a whole special gizmo to hold the pages I was working on um, <laughs> up next to the screen and stuff like that. So I, I kind of feel I'm, 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 I'm happy with electronic now, but my God, I needed that, those paper edits yeah. in the first place. I mean, he really was, he was also, I think the last of that, you'd go i'd go to visit him in london you know and get with him and my agent and whoever his assistants were at the time and we would do the publishing lunch cool. of basically getting through eight bottles of wine between <laughs> four of us um throughout a friday afternoon uh, and i as far as i'm aware that was probably the last instance where that was really done and it's yeah. really yeah, it's like the whole the whole sort of thing that douglas adams mm. is talking about in the hitchhiker's guide and it is I think a dead practice now, but I, I did at least get that final sort of last hurrah hurrah of it. <laughs> so if you can still spit a participle after and, and get the, the apostrophe in the right place after eight bottles of wine, <laughs> you finally made it, yeah. <laughs> I have to say the um, there was a turning point for me. Like I I I'm dyslexic, so I have English issues when it comes to sort of writing stuff down, which is sad because I love reading, despite having to read things over and over again to make sure it sort of kind of fits into my head. And I love uh, I love writing things, but my I, I was struggling, especially when I first started the website with um, just formulating um, a paragraph or or creating something lucid and and um, you know readable, something readable, and it was. You know, out of all the time I spent in school um, writing papers uh, in my degree and stuff, the one person who taught me, you know, the most out of it was a guy who I went to work with when I worked. used to work for Oviva Insurance, and a guy called Chris Roper, um, who has he's written his own book actually as well. But he basically took one of my articles and he ripped it to shreds but in a nice way he basically took it out of you know out of nowhere he didn't you know I, I barely knew him and he just said look man this is how it was and he broke down every part and how it should be and why things worked and why it didn't and for like literally out of all my education it clicked it suddenly just went i understand now and it was because he did it in a visual way and it sort of made things make a bit more sense. Now, I make mistakes, as Mark will attest to, but I'm a, I'm 100% better than I was before. And it, it, all it took was somebody to do it in a, in a certain way. And so I always t I try to take these things on board now because I know that I make mistakes and things like that. And um, yeah, it was just, you know, it was amazing. He gave me a book. It was called, uh, I've got it somewhere upstairs. Um, uh, it's, uh, I can't even remember. It's got, a, it's got, it's something to do with grammar, but it's got like a, uh, it's like a play on words. can't even remember what it is, but it was really helpful as well. And um, it's just mad that, you know, I was, I was like late twenties, you know, early thirties when, you know, this all suddenly clicked into place when really it should have been when I was, a, a teenager, you know, in, in school. Well, it's very different now at schools now because they do teach children grammar mm. and sentence structure and tense. Whilst well, back in my day, it was your handwriting has got to be neat. Yeah. 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 I got somewhere in the middle of that, I think, because I'm, what, 43 now? 
So I actually had some old school teachers who believed you should know stuff around the, what was on the curriculum. So I, but then I had the weird thing where I did really well at English, but got into computers and then started writing again about eight, eight years ago because I was doing writing for work. So now my day job, which is in theory an IT consultant, also involves writing content and documentation and stuff. And I also write in my own time for fun because I'm in the middle of coming out the tail end of NaNoWriMo at the moment with the nervous breakdown. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have like four 4,000 words left to write before tomorrow. And yesterday I pretty much oh, broke myself. I managed to get about 8,200 words done. What was the, and- what's the limit? 30,000, did you say? It's 50,000. You have to do 50,000 in 30 days. And I'm currently at about 46, 44, 45, I think. Maybe 46. Yeah. I'm going to say, I mean, I'm I, as a writer, I'm generally noted for being prolific and getting a lot of stuff out. <laughs> well, that's, that's what Pete said. said. The first thing, even though he's a very prolific writer. near <laughs> enough. Yeah. qualify for us for a kind of a successful nano rhyming or whatever however you would say it. I think, um, the amount the is, of words in one month is is just eye-opening it, the thing is it's kind of like it's a way of teaching you to stop being afraid of writing because you quite literally cannot go back and self-edit you know the only way to keep there's some people that actually do nano in a day they're, they're absolutely what? insane. I have no idea how much MDMA and speed they take <laughs> but they, 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 they literally they start at the dot of midnight on the 1st of November and they get 50,000 words in before midnight and I don't know how they do it I'd hate to try and read it I'd hate to try and read it afterwards as well (laughs) I'm I'm doing the uh, I'm going to I'm going to go in for the uh, the world anvil which is a a similar thing isn't it to um, what you're doing they've got a similar concept about that they're looking but in their case I think you said it's a race so it's kind of who gets the most done yeah. Against, against overall rather than being yeah, a fixed win quantity doesn't equate quality to be fair. no no exactly. yeah i mean i guess I, I as a as a writer that that sort of thing makes me feel a bit squeamish because you're going to feel <laughs> at the end of the day it's i'm not quite sure what you get out of that mm. if you're i mean especially if you're thrashing it to try and just write more words than everyone yeah. else i mean you could presumably you could there's something stopping you just writing the word a yeah i think they've got restrictions on it and it gets gets checked i think from what i understand they they have like the top 10 and then they're red they go through certain things and they're red they've got different uh categories for you know because it's we use it for um our dungeons and dragons on thursdays um for like writing the story and you've got different sort of sections so people and history and um you know events yeah events and things and they have like specific uh so each one of these has a an article and you know all the articles together count to your word count but each article gets checked to make sure that it's you know entertaining you know and things like that so and you're uh, just i am a fish fifty thousand times. yeah yeah well that's it there's (laughs) one of the rules is obviously you can't just do that you obviously can't plagiarize Um, as i understand um your uh shadow the app especially was inspired by gaming wasn't it yeah, it was. I, I ran in the nineties a, a campaign when I was at university, which where this world um, was kind of constructed. And that um, when I came to base, I mean, when I started writing Shadow of the Apt, it was very much with a feel that this is going to be my final big attempt to get published um, because obviously, you know, because it had been so long without getting anywhere. And so I went for somewhere that I felt I knew very well. And I could tell stories in very well. And, and one of the, if you're 
preparing a campaign world where the players may just hair off in any direction at any time, you do know it generally better than you would know a world you create for a book where your characters are generally well behaved and go where you want them to. <laughs> um, and so that that is still um, the world where I can just I could just go back at any time and write more stuff because there is so much going on there that I've never had a chance to um, to play with. How any other books kind of been inspired by uh, games you've run in the past? Um, not specifically. Um, there is, I mean, towards the end of the Shadows of the Apt, um, I was LARPing quite a bit, and there there are characters who turn up which are based on friends LARPing characters. Oh, nice! In um, in sort of very very in joke in the name, but also in in their kind of nature. And weirdly enough, although that sounds horribly horribly self indulgent, it actually added a great deal because it expanded my kind of character range. So that rather than drawing at the same kind of archetypes over and over again, I was working with um, ideas with input from other people. The the LARPing thing. So um, it's you know I've seen it. Uh, I've never taken part, but I was because uh, Pete Pete's done it, and uh, yeah. we were we've been talking about it a lot in the D and D group. So I watched a load of videos on LARP, on LARP battles and things. Man, that looks awesome. <laughs> it looks so when, when it works well, it's very very good. Yeah. It's, it's um, you know, and when it doesn't work, it's it can be profoundly uncomfortable, wet, muddy, and or socially alienating, like like everything. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of very positive life experience, and they cert- on a variety of different levels, it's certainly contributed to the writers. Yeah, I was, I was chatting to, when, when I was uh, doing some interviews for my BBC article on LARPing, I was speaking to, to some people at the at the gathering at Lorraine Trust in, in Local Park, and they said, like, um, one day inspirations for their characters um, was from characters in Shadows of the Apt. They thought it was a fantastic oh. series of books, and they said like, no, it's the, the, there's like the, there's the kin, the, the animal kin, play beast kin in mm. Lauren Trust, and they kind of like they loved the kind of their take on the insect version. So the kind of some of the people were kind of insp- were being inspired by that. And I said, well, actually, you do know Adrian is actually a bit of a larper as well, and their minds were just blown at that point. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. I probably owe it to my publisher to point out um, the, the Shadows of the Amp books, which are my first um, ever books fantasy series. They are being re-released this year um, oh, and on into next year, including for the first time ever an audio. Oh, uh, wow. Who's doing the audio? Do you know? Uh, a chap called Ben Allen. Okay. Excellent. Um, and I was understand as well, like you know, when you kind of first had Shadows of the Amp published, you had already had the first three books written. Uh, first four, as it turned out. I mean, first... the, 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 well, no, but, the, but this is, I mean, honestly, that turned out to be a really good move. I mean, weirdly, yeah. I did not mention this fact to my agent because I felt oh. it would seem overly keen. Um, <laughs> you, I mean, just another note to Aspire Rush, you, you can't be overly keen in this sort of thing. You know, saying I have four books of this series, they're ready to go as soon as you want them. If they like the first book, that's going to be only good news. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it... it it was actually a salient factor in the in the series finding a publisher because it meant the publisher knew they could release several books at their own timescale without suddenly find, you know, finding that, oh, yes, the writer has suddenly had a case of writer's block and, um, you know, there will now be an ellipsis of several years where he sorts himself out. Um, and, in, I mean, as it, as it was, you know, I just kept writing them before the first book without the fifth book had been written and that kind of thing. So, and I've been kind of living off their head sort ever since, to be honest. <laughs> Actually, one thing as well I wanted to ask was... Um... Was it always intended to be like a 10-part book series? Not, it, 
I knew the option was there to write a lot of books, nine or ten. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I also knew I also even then I was was at least savvy enough to realise that was probably a bit of a big ask for the publisher. Um, although you know it was very much of the era the Malazan books were one of the big fantasy properties at the time so the idea of the huge series of huge books and you know Game of Thrones was on was underway and that was certainly part of the publishing consciousness it wasn't as crazy as it sounded but I certainly wrote it so the first four books are a plot line and if it had never gone any further than that that would have been fine and then the next few books are kind of standalones exploring um they focus on particular characters and explore aftermath issues and only really when I, when we were fairly sure that right we're now going to get to reach the finish line was say fine i will now write books eight nine and ten which are their own kind of plot arc bringing it to a conclusion so perhaps appropriately in a book mostly about insects it segments nightly nicely into three parts <laughs> so yeah like deliberately put in like cutoff points so if the worst can worst and it did like exactly just, yeah. yeah i mean one, i mean one of the other, there there are definitely when you're writing a, especially a big epic fantasy series there seem to be two schools of thought about how you structure it as a reader i do not much enjoy books that do not have an individual shape to them so you know you you get some you get some books in a fantasy series where it's basically it's a slice of the sausage <laughs> it doesn't have a it's really have a start it doesn't really have an end it yeah. doesn't have you know a particular climactic moment it's just there is more of the story and that's you know that works for a lot of readers it doesn't particularly work for me and it as a writer i've tried to make sure all of the books have their own story all of the books have their own payoff at the end so that at the end of this book because you don't know you know however long it's going to be before the next book comes along at the end of that book you have a payoff you have a something satisfactory has happened something has been achieved um and there is obviously a you can see where the next book is going to go but you you're not just sort of almost cutting it off in mid-sentence like you sometimes yeah. feel other some um, books do so you don't do cliffhangers then um i i don't as the end of a book i really try not to and i'm aware i know you know that well the, the, the cliffhanger as in literally we're getting to the end of the thing and yeah and then the cliffhanger in that, and the thing has happened, and this this battle has been won, and this thing has been resolved, and we tried up these things, but look over the horizon, there is a thing. And that second one I certainly do, because that, I mean, I feel that's, that's good writing practice, and you always want to have that yeah, breadcrumb yeah. trail leading people to the next book. And I do it for books that aren't necessarily going to have a sequel, because I always want to leave myself that door in case... It's a possibility. I mean, Children of Time wasn't good, was going to be a pure standalone when it came out, and it was a bit of a punt. And I honestly didn't think it would work as a book, which is you know bizarre looking how well it's done. But <laughs> it certainly had that little dot 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 at the end that let me then go on to write Children of Ruin later on. So, uh, do, what what are your views? Like, uh, uh, do you do you enjoy George R. R. Martin's uh, game, uh, Song of Ice and Fire books? Um. Because I, I basically want to lead you on. It's, what it's, do you think about yeah, the fact it, that it, it takes? It's a trick. It's. I I've, I've enjoyed a lot of them, and I I do, I I have found that they have that thing where at the end of a volume there isn't the payoff. And yeah. I, like I say, I find I, I, I pers- purely personally as a reader that is a, that means I end, I find I find the book can end quite flatly. Um, mm. They are they're a remarkable piece of work for the yeah the sheer scope and scale and they've they've i think the the fantasy genre as a whole owes a great deal to the fact those those the books existed and they they did they reshaped the landscape mm. at the time and 
you know opened the door to a lot of a lot of a lot of other books what are you what are your views on the fact that he like it's an, it's a it's infuriates me but i i basically you know to my chagrin um never heard of george r, r. martin until um a, a couple of months before the series started um and my sister said they're they're filming this series in your in our back garden so I, i'm from northern <laughs> ireland and uh my my parents house they were literally filming in the field across the way and she went so this series being filmed here you should read the books and i was just like all right so i got the first one and i literally couldn't read i read i read five books in two and a half weeks because i literally did not i did not stop i was on holiday as well so i i literally just sat on on in a bench with a with a parasol over me because i burned because i'm irish and that happens and i just read for two weeks solid and I, i i was like this is amazing and then it's just like after what is it five years six years and there's still the winds of winter isn't out. as a writer do you know do you do do you sympathize that you know he, he hasn't finished a book you know is it do you get to a point where you're just like i'm totally done I, I just can't i can't finish this series yet i need to do something else or um i mean i've never been in that position but i will i mean i've never been at the level of pressure that must attend on it. Um, you know, I, I, let's face it, I've never been that successful. Um, <laughs> but ge- gen- genuinely, the amount of expectation um, on that series of how it's going to go, even though we've obviously, you know, we've got the TV series, we know how that's gone. Um, yeah. It can't go exactly the same way in the books because the books have, you know, a whole several sets, whole sets of extra characters and yeah, other yeah, things yeah. going on. But even then, um, and I think because of the way that fan base is built up through the TV show, there are a million people or however many people wanting that series of books to end. And each one of them knows exactly how it ends. No two visions of that book are the same. So every version of the books that Martin could write at this stage are going to satisfy a small group of people. And in sense, because it's, it's a, it seems to be quite a volatile fan base, in sense, a vast number of others, no matter where he goes with it. Yeah, I and think... though I mean, yeah, I've got, I kind of feel from his point of view, given that you know he's got other things, you know, he's got other things he's working on. I know he's he's very invested in the wild cards uh, superhero mm. series, which I'm very fond yeah. of, for example. Yeah, um, and you kind of think you must get to a point of thinking, well, actually, what will I possibly get out of finishing this series at this point? accept vast amounts of vitriol on the internet well that is very true to be honest um and i i i can't lie in that i have sort of preconceptions on how things should go um that i, I think it's only especially the long and both everyone's preconceptions will become more and more rooted the longer the gap is as well so it's it's, it's a bit of a vicious circle as well um if he if if he if it had been a year or two years and then the book had come out, there wouldn't have been time, I think, for everyone to decide how things went. And then, of course, there will be the TV show and the people who like the TV show will want it to be like that. And the people who didn't like the TV show will want to be different to that and repair the perceived problems that they felt with the TV, the, the TV. And again, everyone's idea of that will be different. And so what do you do at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think I find the Game of Thrones TV series interesting because I mean, this is the only time I know where a book, uh, where a TV series has been commissioned on a series of books. 
that hasn't yet been completed? Um, I don't know. I don't exception, know. I think. How do you expand? How do you expand? I think it's, it's finishing. It's literally finishing. Um, but when the when the first series was commissioned, were all the books out? I thought no, that no, actually, so, yeah. I mean, I, I think the problem is you can't with especially the pace TV works. You can't wait, yeah, because yeah. you want to do it while the books are coming out because that's when yeah. your fan base is there. And obviously, as soon as the books are finished, people move on. Yeah, because another expanse book, like the final one, is being published very soon yeah yeah so i i mean i suspect it's probably more common than not um, yeah okay. i mean the witcher Fair books point. i think are coming still coming out mm, you think still so. writing them? Uh, i mean again i think that there are different i mean with with going back to series structure if you had if you have a series where you know this is an end point and that is written mm. even though the series is still going on you could aim at that and think fine we'll end we can end there and then if it's done really well we can carry on with the next one but where you've got to think where it is just one colossally ambitious epic storyline like the um, like game of thrones is yeah i mean you you just have to kind of leap out and obviously they caught up with it and then find final or right, we'll we'll talk talk with george get his notes on where where he wants it to go and and then we'll do our own version of and yeah, complete, the last books about I, I just can't accept that he that he said that's how it ends. It just does you know <laughs> there's no way that a guy who literally kills favorite characters at the drop of a hat is going to end it like the way it was ended. Which is the most ridiculous it was just yeah, uh, maybe possibly, maybe it's just me. We'll uh, never know. Yeah. Well, this is it. You know, it's I just heard like... a theory that apparently um, one of the reasons why the Game of Thrones series was commissioned was so um, Judge R. Martin could see. Well, okay, let's see how these people kind of make it play out. <laughs> it's like let's get some ideas. That's got to be the most expensive way of dealing with writer's block. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. I just wow. I just like it's you know it frustrated me that they they killed off Littlefinger because I think he was so instrumental in in the entire game you know the game of thrones is Littlefinger basically pulling the strings from the from the you know the shadows and stuff and it you know for him just to be sort of summarily sort of had his throat cut you know with no fun I, I i found I, I found that fairly satisfying really i think it's just yeah, I, I thought he was he was a he was he was a very good character the act the actor um portrayed him brilliantly but the the plot had kind of advanced beyond his own personal ambitions and, and giving the character who who kind of who got him the opportunity to to do to outwit him and and defeat him i thought was very satisfying so. uh, see because i i had like i have massive sort of um <laughs> like for for me i i did i did a like a a, a massive article on it as well just sort of saying this is how it's going to end and little is going to be instrumental and basically the the footnotes of it is um that he basically plays everybody off right you think john snow and danny are basically getting together or things are going to be good uh, and then suddenly he kills them, and it's just going to be him. The last scene, even in the series, the last scene should have been Littlefinger sitting on the Iron Throne with oh, a smirk man. on yeah. his face, and then I, I do not want to even. I mean, I'm sorry. Personally, I, I, I think I would have been a, a bit miffed. If done that <laughs> way. But the colossal amount of internet hate rage <laughs> that would exactly. have prompted would have 
probably added about one and a half degrees to the global temperature. <laughs> but it would have been remembered, though. That's the thing. It's like, even if we were just, if we just stick with the series, as it is, the way it ended, people want to forget it because it was, it was, it was a, it was a clusterfuck. You know, it had some good parts. It had some really bad parts. And people are just, you know, it's not really on people's what, radar. What your take on the ending, Major? Me? Um... Ah, it's weird. I really like the last episode, and I really dislike the penultimate episode. Yeah, which is which is a weird thing. I, I there is this trope of woman in power must go crazy um, that they lent into very very hard in that penultimate episode. And you know, because I am of the profession I am, of course I have my own. Well, if I was writing, I would have done this. But that's you know, that's it's neither here nor there, and it's it's not a it's not a particularly productive way to go about things. And but. I do, I do feel that, that that particular trope is very common and very tiresome and problematic, shall we say. I, I, think, I think it's problematic in that they didn't give it any sort of, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of sort of uh, signaling towards it. Um, yeah. I could buy yeah, into but... her sort of being crazy because of the backstory with her father, uh, with her father. Uh, being pretty yeah, much I mean, you, you could have foreshadowed it more, but I mean, and also, I, mean, I would, I mean, give, give, just, just once it would be nice to have the situation fine. You know, she's got all that power and so forth, and she maybe does terrible things with it, but she doesn't do terrible things just because a woman having power is inherently a thing that the universe kind of has to erase, and therefore she goes completely stark, staring mad, and has to be brought down. <laughs> Because that that does seem to be the 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 go to. Yeah, and that is a bit, a bit. You know, it's been done. It's tired. Yeah, I yeah, I just couldn't. You know, her that thing. Yeah, the, I one thing I, one thing I did like was that battle between the mountain and the hound. Yeah, that was good. That Th- was good. That was playing yeah, ball. <laughs> yeah, that was just suitably epic, and it needed it to be. It needed to be absolutely bombastic, where the the towers crashing round uh, down around them because absolute bombast but it just needed it for those two characters yeah yeah and i i, I mean the how I, I like the hound as a, as a character and the again it, I, I mean it was it was a series that had a, a lot of extremely strong um yeah act, actors in and that that um and none of whose names i can bring to mind at the moment but they were all very good uh, <laughs> um, but no that that particular um uh performance i really enjoyed well it's just like, like even like this minor character like Syria pharrell which was superbly Oh, acted. God, yes. And yes. I, I really want, really, really want him like, to come in at the final episode yeah. and specifically wonder, what do we say to the God of Death? <laughs> Absolutely. Just like... Yeah, no, oh. I mean, that was... Um, I mean, weirdly, that is that is someone I have met. I've done I've done conventions with him. Uh, he's a yeah. lovely chap. But I, 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 I interviewed him once um, and uh, I, because there was a lot of the Game of Thrones, so like uh, James Madden and, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of them on stage and I was one of the... Like, my co-host at the time was trying to, ch- you know, was asking me questions. So I had asked him a question and he went off and he was talking about sword fighting and things like this and I sort of kind of zoned in to what this other guy was saying and he he basically asked me a question and i completely ignored him because i wasn't paying attention <laughs> so everybody's laughing at me and laughing and he's sort of laughing i look around and he's sort of everybody's just laughing and i'm just like okay so and i move on and he didn't say anything and he just i was just like okay <laughs> but yes lovely guy really lovely guy um yeah i i hated the way they just sort of 
voted like democracy suddenly just came in and and bran was voted in as the king and it's just like what come I, on i mean i i kind of i quite like the way it ended although i've got to say you kind of wonder well all right that's fine you put you you are solving the problem by putting it off for a few years yeah um so yeah i mean that you you kind of hope that the more level heads can kind of get some sort of functioning infrastructure work in place before brand pops it but um <laughs> and also i mean another one of the white walkers kind of marching on to you just at the yeah. same time yeah but, but yeah i mean I, I i remember feeling that all right given where we are at the beginning of the end of the final episode that's a fairly satisfactory way of, of bringing it to a close everyone kind of got their bits no one got completely let off the hook um i I could have asked for a bit more for Grey Worm, maybe. Yeah. But I mean, we, at this point, we are basically just those guys on the internet saying, "Well, if I, you know, this, this is how I would have done it," and it's, you know, it's, it's, you you got yeah. you've got to take what 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 the series does, yeah. and you can like it or not. But it's 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 you know, faffling over that kind of that kind of detail. I think is it's not healthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I suppose yeah. it's you know, loads of series falling afoul of of internet rage you know it, it, there's not very many that come out you know unscathed um well, you know look at the look at certain star wars series at the moment well star um, wars is the, is the other one that's that has that that sort of enormously volatile fan base at the moment oh God. Yeah. Cheers. should we start you on the on the star wars film no matter no we'll, we'll just you need to take a break no no we'll uh we, we, you know, <laughs> well i can talk about it if you it? want to talk about it but you know i'm just sort of you know <laughs> I, I just thought it was a good swan song the last you know the the end of it was good it was quite emotional for me as i've talked many many times on many podcasts about it i loved the last one simply because it was the end of a it was an end of an era it was just like that my my basically childhood you know, from from small boy to adulthood ended. You know that was it, sort of. And and as much as I hated, well, I didn't hate. As much as I disliked the Last Jedi, you know, the Rise of Skywalker sort of for me fixed some of the issues I had and ended sort of ended well and sort of got me quite emotional. So uh, you know, I thought it was quite good. And just just like the other, um, I've never been down on the originals. You know, Jar Jar Binks isn't great. Young Anakin is a bit of a pain in the ass but as films i think they have some of the best lightsaber battles uh some of the set action pieces are really good and i've never understood the pure hate that they've got and i enjoyed them when i watched them when i was sort of teenage years and proto nerd rage you see it wasn't quite what everyone expected yeah and so everyone clashed out and they didn't have the internet as we have it now yeah to um thrash it out so everyone just agreed that they hated it for some reason <laughs> yeah so i you know and it's it's like even the even the last jedi which i i i just couldn't grasp it annoyed me in in, in a lot of ways i didn't hate you know i enjoyed it because it was a star wars mm-hmm. film it was just there were certain parts in it which didn't agree it didn't sort of sit with me and how that should be like look skywalker should be say, di- i i think you and i obviously have basically diametrically opposed likes and dislikes on this one so <laughs> no probably best, it's no. probably best to leave it there oh did you that way what are you watching at the moment Adrian? <laughs> oh god i have just finished a rewatch of the old hbo series carnival oh um, i came in to watch that it's brilliant they it's again i mean it, 
it's another to a certain extent another victim of um story meets studio because they very obviously needed three series and they got two and they did their level best with it and produced an extremely good series with some phenomenal performances but you kind of feel they needed more time but also i mean honestly it must have been insane given how much period detail they put in there it must have been insanely expensive to make carnival's quite um, old well, how old is carnival because i remember it being it's early 2000s 2003 yeah, maybe yeah. About 15 years yeah yeah i mean it was it was out of the, it was coming out at about the same time i think game of thrones was starting and what the deadwood yeah, yeah deadwood was the other one the joy of google um, yeah, it's really it's really good actually it's, it's really it's really interesting it's very very kind of clive barkery sort of um, 19 you know 1930s depression sets sort of supernatural um americana um i've just watched last night the first episode of um a program that in the UK is called Fort Salem, and I think it's called something different in America. Oh, with the witches. Um, yeah, we said the first episode. I've been meaning to strong. catch that. Yeah, I've been meaning to catch that one. Yeah. I must admit, but yeah. so much other stuff going on. It's the problem these days, isn't it? Especially with if you have Netflix and Prime and Disney Plus. <laughs> Mate, I, 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 I get basically the chance to watch an episode of something in of an evening with my wife and then there are a couple of shows like i watch um we watch as a family like um star trek discovery mm-hmm. and dark materials and other than that i just don't get the time yeah so where do you stand on star trek discovery from the start? i love I mean, it where do you it, find... it is my favorite star trek oh how did brilliant. you find wow. the first season um i i all right the first season i enjoyed once they kind of got through the large amounts of film yeah <laughs> i they they get to about midway through the, f- the first season they get to a point where the pe- the klingon sound is starting to sound natural and easy whereas there's a lot of long klingon filled scenes where the language is you kind of it doesn't sound like people speaking in in a native mm. language if you see what i mean yeah because it's, it's a, i mean i don't know if it's just the the characteristics of the language it's a very harsh and abrupt language and it, but there's a lot of klingon in there and you kind of understand why most films would basically just switch to english at some point there's the um, Star Trek Six thing, wasn't they? Where they they started out in Klingon, and they did the sweeping camera thing, and everyone was suddenly speaking yeah. English to stop it and from I being think, so. I think that's sometimes, but on, on but you know, I still we love the first, we all the whole family love the first season, and we've continued to love it. I think the third season is doing some remarkably fun things that managed to be simultaneously very Star Trek and also very new which is quite a feat. I really enjoyed Star uh, Discovery, um, but I, I haven't been able to get myself into the, the, the newest series. I watched one episode and was like, eh, it's not You great. have to push through the first two sometimes. Yeah. It's just... this one. I've heard that from a lot of people. They got to two or three and it clicked for them, I think, uh, and now we're into five. Still haven't I mean... seen, I still haven't seen Picard yet. Still haven't seen Picard. What? Still haven't seen it. What? Um, I just... Yeah, I haven't got around to it, but there was people who were kind of going, "Yeah, it's just not, you know." And that's like, "Oh, I love generations and the next generation," and I'm, I didn't want the cards. To... Not a series; it's a it's a film chunked up. Yeah. So if you treat it as that, it does. Some of the episodes feel uneven because the the three set stages of the story are spread across the episodes. All right. Okay. So it's it's like what um, Adrian was saying, where you have some books where it feels unsatisfying because it doesn't have a payoff yep. it's just serving a, a series but you have to wait six months eight months for another one right. with picard you're waiting a week but that was long enough for some people to get their knickers in a twist right. <laughs> <laughs> in, in the land of uh, in the land of binge watching so yeah, that's mm. the thing is that's another thing i find myself sort of waiting 
until it's been on so i can binge watch you know so um mr robot i hammered that like i just left it uh and then i just hammered it and i got through it um only only a month ago um um not i'm not sure if i, I like the ending or not but you know it was a good series very good series um and it's the same like with the mandalorian okay i i waited for four episodes before i watched it and stuff but man that's awesome the mandalorian oh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the whole second series to come out before uh, uh, my disney plus and watching that yeah it's, it's good uh, though my it's my good. kidneys were not letting me wait until it's all out we've been sitting down pretty much every friday night and watching the mandalorian and i'm not giving away any spoilers um but yeah they were just bouncing up and down the latest episode and just pointing out and being pointed all the different connectivities between the this and rebels and star wars and everything else and they're absolutely loving it and to be fair so am i to be fair I, i couldn't bear to wait till the end of it because I just know that I get like spoiler to death and just go insane. Um, yeah. I've got friends that have the same problem. They're like, they, they literally will say to all their mates, please don't say anything or put a spoiler warning up because I don't get to watch it all Sunday because they work. And you see, like, on Saturday morning, they're like, right, a lot of you, fuck you all, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely, uh, yeah, they've done really well. John Favreau is, is killing it at the minute. Uh, just. Yeah, I did you watch the um the um is it the archives or the galleries or something like that the series they did around behind the scenes of the first season no where they have all the round tables I I really would recommend that there's some really good bits in there there's there's a really nice um but I think it's like the fourth or the fifth episode where Dave Filoni is talking about um uh how he sees the films um based on obviously all the time the time he spent working with George Lucas. And he gets because that, and he gets to the end, and everyone's just like, "Well, there's nothing what we can say now, is there? You've, you've just done it." <laughs> <laughs> but, I think George, I I feel bad for George Lucas is another person who I feel bad for. I remember I was going to write a a defense of George Lucas um, many many moons ago before actually the news the news three came out simply because you know he, he created Star Wars and people treat him like shit i know he, he changed things and some of the things weren't great but he, he's the father of the thing that you love and you're you're basically treating him like like shit and it, it annoyed me it always really annoyed me that you know you know i i didn't think the original the, the prequel trilogy was brilliant but you know it, it's still star wars it's still something mm. that he created and you know he has the right to make changes and things and it's just you know, well, on the plus side, he's done all right out of it. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, I, I, I he'll cry himself hurting. to sleep in his bed a millions, but he'll, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's still, it's just one of those things. I don't, one thing sort of annoys me about geek, um, geek mm. culture is that there are a lot, there is a lot of, um, what's the word? Um, there's a Your lot of issues. Yeah, and it's just sort of it, it can get quite toxic sometimes. Yeah, you see well, it. That's, I mean, I, I, I was, I mean, I think Star Wars is one of the areas where that's perhaps the most the most obvious because of the for for whatever reason. Although, I mean, if you talk to people who are thinking like Doctor Who fandom, Doctor Who fandom has been <laughs> quite sort of spiky for quite a long time. Not not to the same scale, but it's 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 been there, and God knows, comics fandom is there. And I think it, you're right. It, it, there seems to be something about that kind of, 
I think it go it goes from um, being a fan of something to very intensely identifying with that thing to basically taking ownership of the thing. And then when someone is doing something that you don't like with a thing that you feel ownership for, it makes people it can make people extremely territorial. Yeah, wasn't there that thing that was said where they said we want more of that thing? No, we don't want that. We, we want something something new. No, we don't want something that new. We want something a bit like the old stuff. Yeah, that's too yeah. much like the old stuff. No, do it a bit different. Yeah. No, that's too new. Just, just, just to stop. To stop. Yeah. Well, the other, the other thing is, <laughs> it's, the, it's the passage of time. You're going from a period when you were absolutely the target audience for such and such a thing, and now you're 20 years older, and this is Star Wars and Doctor Who both, and suddenly they're producing it again, but they're producing it for the equivalent of the target audience. They're not producing it for you know a 40 year old guy with a nine to five job who vaguely who has extremely rose tinted memories of what things were like back when they were 12. They're producing it for kids who are twelve, yeah. and therefore, amazingly, that the you know the the forty year old person oh, is not as good as when it was in my day. Yeah. Well, monsters, the proper rubber monsters in yeah. my day. Yeah, well, that's that. My my friend, um, who, to be honest, he changed his mind about the uh, the Last Jedi. We both. At the, well, I've only seen it once and I, I have never seen it again because I was that disappointed with it but he said you need to watch it again man because of this this and this but he mm. he basically came back to me and he said he said you gotta look at it this this way man it's like this isn't for us this is for kids like you said it isn't for you know they're not making it to sort of carry on you know this legacy for the the adults you know for the kids who are now adults it's for that this new generation and you know and it's true, you know. We had we had Ewoks here. If you think about it, are ridiculous, the most ridiculous yeah. thing. Yeah. And no, you know, we're we got so many happy memories about these things. And then then there's like CGI Gungans, and everybody's kicking off. And it's just like, well, that's that's their thing, you know. That's their little their that's their Ewoks. And, and when porgs. I've seen when I've seen this sort of pop culture thing produced, where it you can kind of feel it is specifically being produced as fan service to that older generation of fans. I mean, A, that almost never seems to work because people are never happy with anything and you can't please even a small amount of the people most of the time. Uh, but B, I always feel that it's the art itself suffers from having to do all of these gurning winks to the audience say, hey, you remember that? That's like that other thing we did 30 years ago. <laughs> and I think that it, if, if if you are in that cleft stick of well we have to do a thing that is both new and the same exactly the same you've got it's to go true. for the new and that i mean that, i mean this is why where i think the new series the, the recent current series of discoveries is is knocking over the park because they've absolutely embraced fine we're doing star trek yeah. we're doing it completely differently i, I don't i mean you, i think you do get um like the mandalorian has a lot of sort of it's very it's old school and feel with a new edge to it but I think it does quite well because it nods to things, but sort of seems to progress the story yeah. quite well. I really, I it, 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 it's 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 whether that nod is that just that little tiny tip of the hat, or whether it's that enormous look the audience in the eye and give them a great big slow wink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be honest, sometimes um, I really like that. Like, um, uh, row, row. yeah, but the problem is anyone who is not in that tiny demographic they are playing fan service yeah. to yeah. is then sitting thinking, well, I didn't get that, but apparently they were spending a lot of time over making it really important that I noticed it. <laughs> I mean, one that actually did that quite well. Do Have you seen any of Lower Decks? The, um... No, no, I have not. That actually, I, I, I came at that because I wanted to see what it was like because everyone was talking about it, but I was convinced I wasn't going to like it. 
but I found that I did, and I found that actually it was very clever, especially all the way through, but especially the last episode uh, with the um, with certain guest stars and so on. They did a really good job of they had that slow wink, but in such a way that you knew they were kind of laughing at it at the same time. There's a scene mm. where they have um, where they have like this whole black this whole cache of um, stuff they go through trying to find weapons because they're caught in a bad situation from someone who's smuggling and one of the things that falls out is do you remember the back in the 60s they had that whole thing with star wars um merchandise where it was where star trek merchandise where it's whatever they could rebadge yeah and there was a spock's helmet yeah yeah spock's space helmet with the big um light on the top and things like that and they have one of those fall out and there's some guy saying this isn't very star trek (laughs) (laughs) you know and it's just little things like that, and someone running off with with Sulu's rape with Sulu's rapier to go and fight something off, and things like that. And it just became. I found that that I was really surprised from not want, not expecting to be the target market, to finding that because the people who are making it were from our age group, but were targeting the newer people, they could get the balance right when they occasionally stick things in. Mm-hmm. But it's such. It's such a hair, a hair, a hair. It thing. is, yeah. It, it's absolutely doable, but I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel kind of erring on the side of the new, rather than erring on the side of just mm. raking the nostalgia. Because if if all you're doing is raking the nostalgia, you're not. Mm. All that's literally all you're doing. Whereas if you're making something new, you've got the chance that you're making some. You're you're making the the memories. For a new generation rather than just um you know playing up to us oldies yeah i, I do like yeah. when they play up to me though uh, and I, it's just like and i i will bang on i will i will say this till i die rogue one one of the favorite star wars films ever and some of the nods they had in that literally just made okay me i will absolutely agree with you with rogue one yeah oh, rogue yes. one that, that's that that's our no man's land that we can shake hands over i love i just no i i i love but weirdly enough i loved it for exactly the other reasons to the reason that you love it and maybe that's that shows that film absolutely walked that line perfect no the, the, the reason i like that film was because it, it's not about jedis it's about regular people and there's a very gray area i love the fact that the um, i mean the the rebels are kind of darker and they they, mm-hmm. they, they do things that they you know that probably you know it, like I've, I've explained this numerous times on these podcasts <laughs> but it's like it's basically you've got these rebels who are portrayed as whiter than white throughout all of these things. These are, this is pure good, but they're not they're, There's darkness behind them yeah. and they do things that they're not sort of proud of. And I love that. And I love the fact that it doesn't have bar Darth Vader at the end, which is just amazing. Um, this sort of, it, it isn't about, it's about regular soldiers. It's a war film. That, yeah. I mean, that, that I, that's why I love, that's exactly why I love that. Yeah, show. and yeah. that's also why I love the, the first season of The Mandalorian. Yeah. Um, I'd say I haven't seen haven't seen any of the second season yet. I'm a bit leery about the the vague thing. Oh yes, in this season of Mandalorian, we're bringing in these three established Star Wars characters. I'm thinking that it's done very well. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think you you have the danger that that's all that's just going to dilute the good stuff in it. I mean, I with, with the, the, the I mean, I get asked occasionally, well, would, what franchises would you like to write for? There are a lot of franchises I would like to write for. The reason I will never be allowed to write for them is because I would only ever want to do that kind of story. I don't want to write about 
any of the established characters. I want to talk about the universe. Yeah, I love yeah. the Star Wars universe. Yeah. It has so much potential. It has so much going on. I would like to do the th what the Mandalorian has done. Just go off to a small corner of that universe and do some stuff and tell some stories that don't have to ever involve the name Skywalker or any other actual character that everyone is so invested in. And I think one of the reasons the Mandalorian works so well and has been so beloved is because they haven't tried to mess with that great big central pool where everyone's conflicted ideas about where it should go are based. You go out to literally the outer rim of the Star Wars universe, both physically and um, philosophically, you can tell stories and people aren't going to get really pissed at you. I, I have a feeling it's going to get sucked into, you know, tanks. That's what I was worried about. That's what I'm worried about, to be honest, because the idea, I think the more you then try and rope it into the core Star Wars thing, the less it will be what people like about it. Yeah. I mean, I've, got, I've got a theory that it's basically, it's basically the side quest character. You've got the main quest had, happening off to the side, off over there, and he's the Mandalorian following his own quest. And basically his job is look after this child. Yeah. And I think, and like, yeah, that's but it's it's, it's it's a bit like um, so I, I'm I'm an inveterate World of Warcraft player. Ah, <laughs> no way. Um, oh, yeah. I'm th thirteen and, years sober. Thirteen years sober. Oh uh, yeah, no, I, I, I've I've literally the amount of back to back time I have spent playing that game is soul withering. <laughs> but one of the things um, you get with Warcraft storylines is there is the stuff you do as your character, and every so often the main pot will turn up, and it will usually involve these great big monolithic slams of NPCs <laughs> turning up, who are the big people, and they will turn up, and they will usually act with the emotional maturity of a 13-year-old, and they will throw their toys out of the pram and make great big decisions, and you, as the foot soldier, sitting there thinking, this is dumbass, why am I, why am I just standing here? Why am I now going to kill your 18 guys because you've told me to despite the fact that what you're doing is patently nonsense um <laughs> and i think you've got the same thing with any big franchise as soon as the big characters hove into view they take they their gravitic pull will completely rob your new characters of any agency i mean it seems to me from looking at it and from some of the discussion about potential other programs that will spin off what they seem to have quite got right is this idea that the main core of the Skywalker saga is this big ongoing sort of like beam of light. Um, but he's kind of spiraling around the outside and every now and again, he just Clips deflects it. off the outside. Yeah. But it, I mean, it, 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 it's a tightrope walk to get yeah. that right. Uh, and again, I mean, left, left my own personal view, purely my own personal view is absolutely. If you, if in doubt, pull away from the light. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Poltergeist wise. <laughs> they've also been lucky with the team they've assembled. When you look at um, the directors and with and Filoni and Favreau are mm. lucky in that they have the knowledge, but they also have the, how should I put this? They have the weight to be able to say no when people are being silly. You know, because Favreau's got all his time he put into the indie side of things and Marvel. Mm. Filoni has the weight that comes from all the time he spent and how well he did the Clone Wars and all the time he spent around Lucas. And so between them, they seem to have that that good balance of the the geek, the Star Wars nerd, and the executive that can say, that's a really stupid idea. We don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, just purely from the first series, they've absolutely nailed it 100%, I think. So uh, yeah. let's hope it... it continues to be so yeah well it's, you know so four episodes in and it's it's awesome you know it's it's really good so also with the second episode they're using a lot of the ralph mcquarrie stuff 
but not like the big stuff. They're using little things to help it feel like old school Star Wars without having to invest too much in the old characters. So you get lots of images that people recognize that are mm. of that, that age. What yeah. I wanted to ask as well is you mentioned World of Warcraft and playing it massively. Have you ever wanted to write for it? Um, well, this is the thing. Um, all the World of Warcraft writing that I'm aware of, and I might be completely wrong on this, is all to do with those main characters. I mean, in yeah. fact, they, what they've done, they, they've made some slightly odd decisions about doing major plot stuff, not in the game, but between games in the books, which is a mm. weird decision for a very interactive yeah. medium. Um, I would love to write in the world of World of Warcraft, but I would not in any way want to write stories about any of those main characters because I kind of feel it's been done and I don't like, you know, if I'm going to, I'm a world building first writer. I feel that what science fiction and fantasy have to offer um, that are specifically unique to those genres are the worlds they create. I think those are the things that people love and the things that people come back to. I would love to write stuff set in the world of Azeroth or, all the, or Drenor or wherever else. I just wouldn't want to ever touch on the main plot. And the problem is that's not what they would want me or anyone to do because they have books that have specific purposes. I feel like... so, so Christy Golden, who does, I think, most of their big profile books, is obviously writing to a thing, well, we need these things to happen in your book involving these characters because that's the effectively the connective tissue stitching this expansion to that expansion. I mean, what I want to ask as well is, um, when you're first writing a book, what comes first? Is it plot? Is it world? Is it character? With me, it's always world. Um, okay. And that, which is, I think, quite unusual um, for writing. But the way I find it, I want to write stories, tell stories about a world. Yeah. And I will construct that world. And then when I know what the world is like, the story, the interesting stories inherent in that world will make themselves apparent to me. The characters will arise out of the details of that world. Um, it's basically it's like setting a machine in motion, which will then produce the other things. Because assuming you, I've done my homework at the start, just through a kind of logical inference. So you set the conditions for the experiment, and yeah. what comes out at the other end of it is inherently part of it, rather than you having to jiggery pokery and yeah. wedge stuff and chop bits off so that it all fit together. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely that, yeah. And it also means that it's um it means that a lot of things happen that i wouldn't necessarily have thought of if i just sat down and thought well i'm gonna have a plot where this happened and then this happened and this happens because the world effectively gets in the way and it, oh well that can't happen because the world doesn't work like that therefore there must be some other thing that happens and that's it keeps it fresh and it keeps it interesting how much i mean i suspect i might know the answer to this but how much do you plan your novels in advance to what um, level of degree of I plan everything in advance except for how it's going to end. Okay. That's interesting. So how, yeah, how, will... how does that work then? So is it, just something, is it just inspiration? Is it something at the end is go, this is how it's going to end? or By the time I get to the end, um, so you, I'll get to the point where I'll probably know like who is going to be there character-wise, the particular kind of flashpoint that's going to evolve, but how that actually resolves, I leave to the momentum of the book when it gets there because the book will have a particular trajectory at that point, which will tell me how that scene is, has to finish mm. based on all the things that have happened up to that point. It sounds and like... Yeah. So far, that's not let me down. I'm sure there'll be come at some <laughs> point where I'll get to the end and think, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds like a variant on something we discussed with a 
we had a um, someone that I know through friends who's a comic book writer. Mm-hmm. And I jokingly said, because I was just starting NRM at the time, that a lot of people have this whole thing that they discuss where they say that they start a story and then the, the characters go off where they want to and drag them along, whether they like it or not. And he said, he said he'd done a workshop with one of the big Marvel editors. And he said, that's absolutely the best kind of stories where even if you plan it one way, if the story drags you that way and you don't follow it, then the story comes out worse because yeah. it feels... Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll back, that, back that 100%. I mean, you do, even though I plan, you still find that actually this is the better way you know, and it is very much like, you know, you find actually this character wouldn't do that. Mm. Or, I mean, and sometimes this is simply that I haven't planned it well enough. <laughs> and I haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, you think a lot about the start of the book and you think a lot towards the end of the book, but the middle, it can be a bit of an undiscovered territory. And frequently, when I go astray, it is usually from about chapter seven. <laughs> if I can get past chapter seven, everything is fine. I know I'm doing it right. <laughs> I don't know. I, I sort of I try to write down like our our Dungeons and Dragons uh, campaign. I'm I'm trying to sort of create this world anvil thing as it goes along, and uh, they, they do some interesting things. And you're just like, would would your character do that? Our clerics turned into basically a murder hobo out of nowhere, and and then there's lots of arguments between Draken, who's Pete's character. Um, about murdering captives and things <laughs> it's like i'm just like and i have to stop sometimes and go uh, will your character do that as your character is this this and this would your character do this like who were you who were you arguing with you were arguing with me um the other day what was it because yeah. you wanted to kill somebody as like would he actually kill them because he's defenseless and he wouldn't who was it the mate that wasn't that wasn't the mind mage you tried nope. to, the mind mage he was defending he was, was defending, defending the mind mage. i was I wanted to attack the um what turned out to be the succubus because she uh, was sat there quite happily and everyone else was under control of her. Yeah, well, something. <laughs> that was it. I was like, but she's undefended. She has no weapons and you're just going to attack her out of nowhere. And I was just like, but that's not what your character would do. And then there was, there's always the argument. It's like, but that's not what they are. And But then it's like, do you have to just let them free just to do what they're going to do? But yeah. Do you get much sense to do much gaming, Aged? Yeah, I mean, I... As much as I can. I mean, it's it's. Um, yeah. I I I'm in involved in four kind of ongoing games at the moment. Oh, wow. Well, wow. it's honestly it's 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 been a lockdown thing because it's it's yeah. suddenly the idea of gaming online, which is always fairly unappealing, as sort of go. This is the it's, it's, yeah. it's not happening that way. It's not happening at all. So I'm running a couple of games and I'm playing in a couple of games and. They've all been very subject to availability, and God knows, in the last, I've had some edits over the last ten days, which have pretty much soaked up all of my spare time. Um, but yeah, theoretic, theoretically, theoretically, um, uh, I'm gaming probably more now than I have in quite a long time. How how, how do you find your your groups work? Are they are they are they idiots, or do they <laughs> or do they do? Oh, what they're I, meant I to like do? to think I curate my players very very. Well. <laughs> <laughs> what games are you playing, by the way? Uh, so I'm playing. I'm playing the world's stupidest monk in a fifth edition game. Um, well, basically, I, I worked out. Well, all right, a monk's dump stats are intelligence and intelligence charisma. So I'm absolutely going to lean into that really, really hard. <laughs> um, I'm playing in a game of Shadowrun. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, I'm running a game of Root based on the um, the kind of the, the Kickstarter. Rule set. It's it's um, 
It is based on the world set up in the board game of the same name, and is about delightful woodland animals murdering each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, that's um, yeah, that, I'm running that, and that, that's gone extremely well. It's, it's very, it's, it's set up so that it's very kind of free and easy. To, you're telling very kind of picaresque sort of stories with a band of vagabonds wandering about playing various factions within this forest against each other and that's that's gone very nicely and Wind in um, the Woods by way of Quentin Tarantino <laughs> kind of, I mean maybe not maybe not quite I mean it's <clears throat> it almost Wind in the Willows by way of um, sort of Jack Vance's Cujo saga oh, okay. kind of thing but um, and then I've just finished a game of um, Legacy Life Amongst the Ruins and I'm just about to start a superhero game also on under the using the powered by the apocalypse type rules. Wow. I I I, I it, our Dungeons and Dragons game takes most of my life. I don't even know how you can do that. I play World of Warcraft. Wow. How well, many the, characters I mean, the, how many characters do you have in World of Warcraft? I honestly I have I although I've dabbled with various alternatives, I've really had the same main character since I picked up the game about fourteen years ago. Oh, sorry, because I could oh. never understood. I always I'm always a warrior and I was always <laughs> I, I couldn't get any more characters. It's like everybody was running around with five le- fully leveled sort of characters. Yeah. I was like, I can barely level this guy. How how are you getting five characters with all that armor? I just do not have enough time in the day to do this. <laughs> See, I never got into World of Warcraft, it never clicked for me, but I used to be hooked on City of Heroes and City of Villains. Oh, yeah. And that's how I learned about all Titus. Because it was like, oh, but you and and you could and but oh but if you try and, oh wow no, that's really shiny, what's he? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it, it World of Warcraft's like crack. I had the I had to end that one. That relationship mm. was uh something I needed to leave because it was literally I was spending all my time in the game being bored if i was bored i'd just be bored in the game if i you know i remember my, my sort of epiphany moment was i was in um i was in uh, what what's i can't even remember the begins of the no um it's one that's got like this sort of like uh beam of light uh it was like uh, i can't even ogmar or, or something i can't remember what's called but basically i was in that city and i was flying around in my griffin bored and i was there for about an hour and a half and i went why why am I doing this? <laughs> and it just clicked with me. It says, I need to leave this game now because I'm literally, it's affecting everything. I was just like, right. So, and I, I deleted, I deleted the game of my character the next day. And I just, uh, and I haven't looked back since as much as I've tried, I've much as I've been really wanting to try it again. I was like, no, I need to leave that shit alone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I tend to get, into, I mean, I, 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 at least on and off, I've, I've basically been in raiding guilds and I've found that that's been a very positive source of sort of social interaction. Yeah. And well, I got to meet. I got to know a lot, but also I, I tend to have this thing. Where, I mean, the new expansion has just dropped, so I've been playing it a lot. Uh, and this, this is why these edits turn at a particularly awkward time. I haven't been playing it anywhere near as much as I would have liked to have been playing it. Um, but I'll play it a great yeah. And then eventually you get to the point where I've done the stuff, and then you'll fall back into fine. This is the, like the little daily grind that you have to do to keep earning yeah. things. But I find that's a really useful mental unwind time because by that time it's all known you kind of know exactly what you're doing it's not terribly challenging it's a matter you sit down you potter about you chat with people while you're you know killing your 18 orcs or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing and then that's you know that's about an hour in an evening um that's really useful kind of decompression time yeah yeah i mean i've been playing star wars squadrons a fair bit online with, with a bunch of mates and like from university and basically five of us get together form a squadron up 
I'm just going to shoot up Empire. Yeah. She doesn't air tie fighters, but it's just it's just relaxing. <laughs> it's calming, as, you know, and which it can be fine next wing. But <laughs> you're just hanging out, hanging out with your mates and chatting and like the screaming out, looking at sports in attack position. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. The the the, the, so, the social side of thing is definitely a big pull. Like I, the one thing that that kept me in World of Warcraft was because I had a lot of very close friends in there, and I'm I'm still friends with them now. Um, but it was just sort of it was eating everything every other part of my life up, and I was just getting to the point where it was yeah. just like yeah, I couldn't I couldn't deal with it anymore, and I had to just make a decision and. uh there's a lot of drama as well I find in guilds because our, ours was a competitive raiding guild and I w- it just got really sort of bitchy and um, that was another Yeah, one. I mean, I, I'm, I don't think I, I couldn't do the sort of very, very competitive raiding I used to do way back. The guild I'm in at the moment um, is considerably more laid back. It's one evening a week. Yeah, um, raiding rather than three, <laughs> because uh, yeah, which I just I couldn't do time wise, but I also I just don't think I'd have the the mental endurance for. Because <laughs> I I mean I have had I've had burned out and gone and just just left the game for sort of six months at a time in the past because of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I'm I'm really happy being just just going along at the level where you kind of feel you're getting you're achieving stuff and that you get all the camaraderie, but at the same time you you don't feel that well because I haven't spent 19 hours achieving this one thing to give me an extra 0.05% damage, then I'm really letting the side down. I'm not going to stop, so. <laughs> the grind, man. Oh, the yeah. grind. Yeah, I mean, because you've been kind of tempted by EVE Online, like the, the spreadsheets and starships, mm. and then I hear about the amount of time you need to invest in it. Every region's thinking, nope. Yeah. I know I have, I have a life. <laughs> My dad used to play that, and uh, yeah, he, he just said it was like, it took up so much of his time mm. um and i i like those concepts i like games where it's like they're so in-depth like that like you got um elite dangerous and uh and even like um what's the new one star citizen well to be fair that's still not coming out yet. i'm gonna yeah. say that doesn't that that's that's gonna turn up sometime after the end of well, my, do you what, my, my, one, of, one of my best mates his his wife is hr for the company that created they're based in Cheadle hume and uh or uh, withington sorry withington and uh yeah the she's hr and she's just been hired and i'm kind of thinking it's either because they need to let everybody know that they're fired and uh, (laughs) there's not going to be any game or they just hired a load of new people because they need to finish this thing off but uh yeah well well, the amount of money they clock in every month i'm pretty sure soon that they're just going to do a hostile takeover of the uk (laughs) Because their they, GNP will be higher than ours by the time next year's finished and Brexit. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> it. Um, yeah. Um, bit of a random one. You, you you sort of talked about, you know, you like world building and you want to be mm. outside of them. You like franchises, but you want to be outside of them. Um, what's your? Have you read much of the 40, Warhammer 40k, 30k Black Library stuff at all? Um, I think I'm allowed to say that I have recently written for the 40k Black Library. Um, I've got a short story turning up in uh, an inf- upcoming Inferno collection. Oh, and we've got some other stuff we're working on. So. Oh, great. Yeah. Are you allowed to say what it's about or give any hints? Um, Subject to NDAs? I think think I, I i mean it's it's um it's 40k rather than sigma and it's 
Gene Silicolt sort of Oh, right, okay. Ooh, I do like a good Gene Silicolt story. Yeah, I mean, the weird thing, basically, the last, must have been, yeah, last year at the Birmingham Games Expo, they were releasing a lot of the Gene Silicolt stuff, and they had a lot of the art up. <laughs> the old And there was, there was some art from the, um, from the faction book. It was absolutely beautiful art, which basically it's showing effectively a failed Gene Stealer cult interaction. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the intent was from what the artist's brief was or whatever, but to me, you're looking at all these kind of the space marines and the Adeptus Mechanicus, uh, Skitaria and so forth, and doing all the sort of shooting into the crowd and so forth. From my eyes, this is like, it is very obvious who are the good guys in this scenario, and it's not the Imperium. Uh, no. And I thought, right, I, I'm going to try and write a sympathetic story about the Gene Steeler cult if it kills me. Wow, wow, no way, that sounds amazing. That sounds so good. That must be a hard sell as well, too. It's a bit of a, <laughs> having then read the book, it is a bit of a hard sell, but we'll see. Wow. Okay, I'm, Holy I'm, shit. I want to read that. I want to read that. Yeah, because the, the thing is, the whole thing about, oh man, because the Gene Steeler cult have a really good sort of, their background in that they sort of, believe that they they're sort of infected by the this sort of like the tyrannid yeah Yeah. and you know that love and devotion that community-minded insectoid yeah but the thing is they they don't realize that they're just food they will be food for the tyrannid tyrannids when they they come in and they just they're, they're they're in their mind they're doing it for their their sort of you know uh their species and for this greater power that's going to come down and yeah. um yeah it's yeah well that's going to be an what, interesting what was the action by black library when you handed in your manuscript um there's a lot of i mean this is in, because this is my first um franchise work this is for the yeah. short story um and um games workshop are, ex- are extremely serious about yeah. the consistency of their ip so yeah we had a lot of edits and we went back <laughs> okay. and forwards a lot of times um because it had to be absolutely in line both with the details of what had gone before, but also just the general, the ethos. I mean, my, yeah. my, I did get my favourite ever editing note. Go on. Well, so um, I was writing about agricultural worlds. Yeah. And someone had come to this agricultural world, and this was, was a kind of a grim, mushroom-growing, horrible agricultural world. And it was a throwaway again, not like, though, that no, there's not like the green fields and, and rolling hills and so forth as you expect. And I got this note saying, no, all of the agricultural world are horrible. This is the world of Warhammer 40k. Everything is nasty and bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, I think, you know, as much as everybody sort of it, it, hates Games Workshop for being money grabbing, you know they're you know they're, they're a big company, but their their backstory there, you know there are a, there are honestly there are a huge number of people involved with Games Workshop who absolutely love the um, love the the worlds yeah, and the um, the characters and yeah. the factions and so forth. There's a the, the huge amount of devotion there. Yeah, it's yeah just... what impresses me with Games Workshop is like, well, the Warhammer 5K universe and fantasy universe is one of the most incredibly detailed game universes that I know of. I mean, if you look at the first edition of um, Warhammer 5K, Rogue Trader, it's about 70 percent of it is purely backstory and background. Yeah. yeah, I was I was really quite disappointed. I, I thought it was going to be a role-playing game when it came out rather than a yeah. game. And yeah. honestly, you kind of, the material provided there, you could basically have just run a role-playing game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, mean, I think originally easily. it was designed almost as a kind of small scale skirmish role play game. Yeah. Mm. They just kind of realized that people were trying to write bigger games. 
Are you, what are you, what are you doing, Mark? By the way, what, what are you, what are you doing? What are you fixing? Oh, there was a problem with. Um, I installed a new video card earlier on, and it was throwing its toys out the pram. Oh, okay. I wanted a confirmation code for something. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you were organizing things mid podcast. But yeah, well, um, <laughs> yeah, that's where we're off track there. Yeah, I mean, um, so how did this kind of whole come about? This um, uh, writing for Black Library. Um, in this case, I actually I actually contacted them. Like I said, because of this, uh, I got quite inspired by the whole Gene Steeler stuff that I saw at the Birmingham Expo. Went off, got was hold that of the UK book. Games saw... Expo. Sorry. Was that yeah, UK the UK Games, Games Expo. Yeah. Right. Um, and I just thought, actually, yeah, I would really like to write that story or have a go at writing that story. So, um, uh, yeah, I just came, came to, um, just getting, getting all of the relevant people and sending them a pitch. Oh, nice. I am Good. really, do, when, when is it released? Do we, do you have a, uh, I'm not sure. Kind of the thing with obviously the whole situation we're in at the now with the release dates are all over the place, but yeah. Yeah. I certainly, it was going to be early next year and may well still be early next year. Cause I don't think they've. Games Workshop have kind of slowed too much. No, yeah. In their how was, schedules. Yeah. How was twenty twenty and COVID nineteen and the whole shit show twenty twenty kind of affected you and your writing? Um, I mean, honestly, one, I have been very productive because that's my way of escaping thinking about what's going on. Fair point. Yeah. Uh, other writers I know have been found it extremely hard to write for exactly the same reason um it seems to hit people one way or the other um but i mean god knows i i, I yeah writing has always been an escape for me and it's also it's an outlet for me to just vent my frustrations sometimes um and so yeah i've probably got more done than i would normally have got done in the equivalent period of time um just because you know it's a matter of you 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 bury you bury your head in it to a certain extent yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I had my, my kiddies uh, were off school from March until September, and so basically a lot of my writing just went straight down because I was basically being dad whilst um, Kaylee mm. worked worked upstairs um, because she was working from home. But yeah, it's bas- and I found also found my taste change. Like before, in February time, I was well, January February time, I was loving Kingdom, that Korean period. Oh yeah, zombie drama, which is all about. A deadly plague of zombies sweeping across, you know, her career. Now, don't really want to watch it too much at the moment. <laughs> for some reasons, yeah, it's kind of lost the taste for it. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's like, have you had kind of similar interactions? Like, you know, have your tastes caused almost changed because of COVID? Um, I don't. Th- I mean, I don't think I've had any ideas which have been sort of imperiled by what's gone on and I, I mean I know I know writers who have and I, I mean I'm sure there have been a whole fl- flotilla of writers who've had sort of like sort of epidemic themed books and so forth just fin- being finished when all this is kicked off and that must be a real problem because you think well do I or don't I and yeah. there's going to be I suspect an absolute yeah exactly that and I suspect out of that glut there will probably be one really interesting genre book probably more dealing with the idea of social isolation than actual disease yeah there will be one probably really interesting mainstream lit book and there will be a million other books all jostling for room mm. talking about plagues and <laughs> it's not a you know I, I i'm absolutely not suddenly leaping in to do hey i'm gonna write this plague book because you know it's it's a, in the crowd. 
a you'll get lost in the crowd but also b you know this is a real thing that real people are really going through and may well have yeah. lost people too and all been very ill and they probably don't want it per se i mean you know there is you know the science fiction fantasy is all about being socially relevant or certainly it has the potential to be very social relevant it's also there to be escapism yeah. and sometimes you know you sometimes the escapism is what people will be looking for is there a one for you oh sorry oh no you Matt. you you work away you you sorry you far away so obviously when you write for this sort of genre you you usually do it because you love it is there a guilty pleasure book that you go back to or an author you go back to that you've really that you maybe you you discovered growing up and you find you go back to sometimes because you like going back over their their work or you just like to re-experience that that particular story I don't. I mean, I don't know. What, I mean, the, the the whole concept of the guilty pleasure, I think, is a little yeah. problematic in and of itself. I mean, there's nothing that I my right my reading taste, for example, have definitely changed. Okay. Um, I tend to. I find that I can't necessarily read a straight up sort of epic fantasy narrative in the way I used to, mm-hmm. unless it's doing something interesting. So, for example, I absolutely love Jen Williams. Um, uh, Ninth Rain series, and I absolutely love R.J. Barker's work because they are doing interesting things with the genre. But I don't think I could sit down and read another book about another prince, right? You know, killing another <laughs> dark lord or anything like that. Um, just not because there's anything inherently wrong with it, but just because I've read enough of those books that I need something new. I need the the new idea. I need the I need basically I need the interesting world or the interesting take. And then I'm all over it. But if it's just if it's just that, I guess I don't do comfort reading in that sense because I think okay. comfort, comfort reading in that sense does not actually feed the part of my mind that reads. Have you have you read any Richard Morgan's uh, Landfit for Heroes? Uh, no, I've certainly read some. I've read some Morgan. I've, I've obviously read um, the Altered Carbon. Yeah, they're um, correct. No, no, like that. Richard Morgan was his take on the fantasy genre. And it being Richard Morgan, it was very grim, dark, and it was basically like you got the the battle against the scale folk. This is the consequences of it. So mm. you got basically got like here the PTSD, and it really does give you like an interesting perspective on what would happen to like you know, to all the heroes after the battle. I thought of some truly horrific wars. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's actually really. Well, that's, really I mean, that's one. Certainly, since the um, from um, kind of the what the the mid to late nineties, when fantasy did kind of turn more towards the grimdark, I think the the enduring, the best enduring legacy of all of that is that it's added that whole extra dimension. That, okay. I mean, it, not not that there weren't books dealing with that previously, but certainly it's made it much more front and center. The idea that yeah. that it's not all about that very um, polarized morality and that very um, <laughs> That very simple story um, of of good and evil, and it's you know it's to do it, mm. it's the it's the idea that just because you're a character in a fantasy world doesn't mean you can't actually also be a real person. Did you read much of David Gimmel's work? You know, like Dress. And yeah, I, um, I I I I mean, I read everything. He, I read everything he wrote pretty much. <laughs> um, I absolutely loved. I absolutely loved it. I learned a great deal. A great deal from it. I mean, I I think Knights of Dark Renown is probably still my favourite of his. Yeah. Oh, I think that's one of his. He didn't like. He really didn't like, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's. I think that you wouldn't have 
um, he's one of those writers that you absolutely wouldn't have the the fantasy genre in the current position it is now without him. Yeah, you can that's certainly. Fair. I mean, if if you you know, I know it's there in my work, and I think you can see it in Abercrombie's work and so forth. That that, that, that he, that's definitely um part of the foundations. We're part, you know, one of the one of the giant shoulders we're all standing. Talking about Abercrombie, my boss, um, who is perpetually sort of um going, have you read this book? Have you read this book? Have you read this book? And I'm like, no. And he's like, you need to get that book. You need to get that. Book. He he's got me to download audiobooks for the Blade itself, uh, and the and the other books by Abercrombie, um. I, I'm, I'm initially starting i've only started listening to it it's quite hard reading well listening because there's a lot of there's a lot of information going on um but yeah um it, it, he's a he's a phenomenal right i mean, I mean yeah. when you get to um heroes which is kind of the i think it's um best of cold and heroes actually particularly which are like books four and five in that sequence yeah uh are superb and i think heroes is a genuine masterpiece. Wow. Okay. What are you reading at the moment, Adrian? I'm reading uh, R.J. Barker, Call of the Bone Ships. Oh yeah, I've heard good things about that actually. I, I mean, the Bone Ships was, I think, is in, one of my favourite fantasies of all time, purely oh. because of the really interesting ideas that have gone yeah. into the world. I mean, it's, it's beautifully written. The story is very good. Um, it's it's kind of epic naval fantasy which is not a thing that's often done. It's, it does it extremely well, but just okay. the, so it's naval fantasy involving lots of battles between big ships on a world where there are no trees and there is no wood. <laughs> okay. And he is, I mean, he does the thing that I think world building needs to do is he explores the implications mm. of the changes he has made to the world wow. um, all the way through. And every single part of it is just steeped in the idea that everything here logically hangs together and in a very oh, wow. different world to anything that has existed in, in, in history. I've got I've got another uh, it's another set of books that he's recommended me for the to be honest he's generally quite good he started me off on Pierce Brown's um the Red Rising um saga mm. which is amazing R- was really really good I'm looking forward to book six but he, he's pointed me have you ever heard of Peter Klein's here it's called Axe Heroes. Yeah, I was. Um, so, I based on what you said, I don't know. I, I I know the name. Yeah. I do not know if I'm now linking it with the right book, because yeah. I'm thinking of a book where it's there. Are, it's a world where there are superheroes, but there's also like the world is full of zombies. Yes, it's that one. It's that one. It yeah. is that one. Sorry, yeah, I've read yeah. X Heroes. It's called X Heroes. He said to me, it's like that. Yeah. So I've got those. It's another record. So I've got to I've got to go through those as well. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to them. It's just, it's getting the time to do it. Cause I usually sort of, mm. um, I read a lot when I'm on holiday or if I'm on the train or if I'm traveling and things, but because I'm not There's traveling anywhere, I'm not going yeah. anywhere. It's audiobooks. So when I'm painting mm. my 40 K stuff and things, I'll, I put I'm, my I'm, a, I'm a big fan of audiobooks. Myself. Yeah. Audiobooks. Yeah, I, I, I've been, I've been very lucky. My, all of my audio uh, readers have done extremely good. I, I find with audiobooks, I can listen to podcasts, no problem when I'm walking about doing things. But audiobooks need more attention for some reason. I don't know why, but it's using a different part of my brain. I seem to be able to pick them up and put them down even very, very, very quick. Yeah, I, I can yeah. listen for five minutes, and then I always seem to remember where I am when I pick it up again. So, okay. I mean, I just started Ready Player Two on Audible, um, just because I quite enjoyed the first book. And I've also found that it depends for me who's doing the narration. Mm, so yeah, um, Will Wheaton's doing Ready Player Two. I find him very engaging. I was I'm part way through the Enterprise incident on the Discovery 
from Discovery Books um, as an audiobook, which is kind of like a prequel to where the Enterprise was when it meets Discovery. And I find that much harder work because the guy who's doing the voiceover for doing mm. the reading for it, he's very even when he's trying to be expressive, he doesn't really change the tone of his voice. Yeah. He changes the timbre of it. And I find that I need to put more attention into it because it all sort of mushes together. A, a good reader absolutely makes or breaks uh, yeah. an audiobook. I mean, I, I've, give, I've given up on audiobooks. I mean, I, I tend to listen to audiobooks or books I've already read rather than ones that are completely new to me. And I've given up on ones where I really enjoyed the book because um, even sometimes because the reader is actually putting too much into it. So there's one book um, where there are a number of non-human characters and the reader was going to town on giving those characters the most ear-gratingly inhuman voices they possibly could. And it just made the listening experience basically intolerable. <laughs> um, and, but yeah, I mean, it's reading an audiobook is an art, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an art form. And I always, I, always, I mean, I, I, I am sufficiently um self-indulgent that i always listen to the audiobooks of my own work because i like to hear someone else interpreting it yeah. it is you're you're getting someone else's take on the characters and how they sound i like uh jonathan keeble i'm basically if jonathan keeble if the, the 40k but or sorry the the horace heresy books which i quite lis like listening to if it's not jonathan keeble i'm not interested <laughs> it has to be jonathan <laughs> keeble <laughs> it's like he's my he's my go-to guy when it comes to audiobooks um but uh, you're you're bang on about sort of audio you know they make or break a book like red rising at the start i just you know, wasn't buying into it just because the guy had this really ridiculous sort of Irish accent. As much as the characters within it are meant to be <laughs> descended from Irish and stuff, it was just, it just didn't fit in my sort of mind on how it should be. And I was so close to just going, yeah, I'm not buying into this. But the character changes and he changed with it. And it got a lot better from that point on. But at the start, I was just like, yeah, I'm not buying into this sort of really Irish accent that you're putting on. It's not really doing it for me. And Luckily, he changed and made it sort of it, it, it got better. But yeah, I, yeah, I totally buy into that. It's um, I, I like a lot of history history books. So I listen to um, so one of my favorite historians is Tom Holland, and I listen to a lot of the his audio books, and he always has quite good um, narrators um, sort of. Uh, sort of art um what's the word narrating well narrating his books but i was listening to um an old school history book um the the, the rise and fall of the roman empire by um oh, i can't even remember the guy's name i well-known historian gibbon? Gib gibbon gibbon yes it is gibbon yeah that was it and it's got the worst narrator ever <laughs> it just makes an extremely dense book that little book you know this audio and yeah. it's just like oh this i want to listen to it just so i can sort of kind of you know do a bit of learning but it's just like yeah it's it's killing me i can't can't do it it's just so dry <laughs> i know it's, it's a dry book but it's like you know the guy's reading it doesn't make it any better <sighs> right okay um that's that low uh, i think we'll leave it there um okay. has been it's been an absolute pleasure really really interesting yeah. actually one, one one more thing before we go because uh, it'll be very remiss of me not to ask how how if people are trying to learn you know who want to write a book who want to be novelists who want to who want to create what's their best in how do they do it what what's the <laughs> i mean the problem is I'm now sufficiently long enough in the tooth that the industry has kind of moved on because when I was getting published, it was 
you know trad or nothing and now there are there are various other ways you know there's a lot and i i'm not in any way qualified to talk about things like self-publishing because i've never had never done it um the trad publishing route is certainly still there and it's a matter of polishing your manuscript as best as you can sending it off to agents and editors that you've researched to make sure they're taking on new stuff and that they actually publish the sort of thing that you're writing and hoping that you you hook them in your sample chapters that they want to see more that's that's what worked for me but like i say the 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 methods of getting published have certainly broadened since then yeah, I would go to writing conventions such as Edgelit and others. Basically, go there, meet people, learn from the workshops, go to the panels. The caveat, so I never did that before I got published. I've only okay. ever been to conventions as a, a writer. Yeah. And I'm very glad. Okay. Because I am supremely socially awkward when I do not <laughs> know where I fit. Uh, and I was insanely desperate to get published, and I would have made such a nuisance of myself being completely unable to talk to people in the civilized fashion that I would have been blacklisted throughout the industry. <laughs> so I think, you know, <coughs> writing courses, conventions, writers' groups, your mileage may vary. Your best idea is to take stock of the sort of person you are and the sort of writer you are, and what tools are therefore going to best best fit you. But you know, if you are, as I was, a supremely socially awkward and also powerfully self-opinionated and conceited person, <laughs> turning up with your t- doggy manuscript trying to force it on, a- on editors is probably not going to do you any favours. <laughs> but I will say one thing, uh, Mark, I'll always go back to this one workshop that I did when I first edited it, Mark Shadborn's The Business of Writing, and that pretty much set in motion my entire writing career where I ditched engineering and I'm now a freelance journal and writer. So, yeah, I mean, they are worth going, but as you say, don't be a dick. <laughs> well, there you go, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. There's your your bit, your nugget of, uh, your nugget of truth right there. Don't be a dick and you'll go far. Um, thank you very much for your time, Adrian. It's really appreciated. It was super interesting. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that that um, Gene Scaler cult book. Um, so hopefully... Story. story. Yes, sorry. The story. Um, so yes, uh, for, for tonight, uh, I've been Matt Geary. Uh, with me has been Peter Ray Allison. Take care, everyone. Mark Canty. Look after yourself, people. Be safe. And Adrian Tchaikovsky. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.